Yo, what's good, my people? It's the Graph Mensa here, host of the If You Don't Know podcast and a news round presenter. And you are listening to the Just Checking In podcast. How are we all doing? Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Event, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have an atta and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In this week's episode, I'm interviewing the other half of the presenting duo behind the Huddersfield Town podcast, Utopia, David Hartrick. I've already checked in with Stephen Chicken, his other half. Dave is a journalist, writer, and the author of the book, Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. Dave started out life as a car mechanic and worked in the auto trade until he was 28, when he then had an epiphany and realised he wanted to do something different with his life. Dave started a blog called In Bed with Maradona, became an analyst at Opta for Huddersfield Town and wrote articles for the Huddersfield Examiner, which led to his role on Utabia. In this episode, we chart his journey from car mechanic to sports journalist, how that has impacted his career and given him skills traditional journalists might not have had, as well as a deep dive into his book Silver Linings through a mental health lens. We also discussed the move he made as a teenager from his hometown of Brighton, where I studied at university, to Yorkshire and the impact that had on his mental health, including shyness and social anxiety. We also talk about the pillar of support his wife has been in supporting him. We finish by talking about his experience of COVID-19 twice earlier this year, what he learned from it and why the consequences of it often get forgotten when it comes to professional footballers. So this is how my check-in with David Hartrick went. Dave Hartrick, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you for coming on and letting me check in with you. First of all, I loved Silver Linings. It felt very much like a football history book about the England team as much as it did with Sir Bobby's. How has the response been to the book and how are you getting on, mate? Uh, Really, really well on both fronts, really. The response to the book was quite overwhelming. A lot of people really, really liked it. had a very nice response from the Robson family as well, which was important. And I was was really pleased with that. And yeah, all good. Uh, Like a, a sort of an itch I've wanted to scratch for years and years and years writing that book. I had all the research done and I had everything laid out. I just never had the time to do it so finally getting it done and getting it over the line yeah big moment really and I'm just really pleased with how it's gone top stuff mate your journey into journalism is not the path well trodden <laughs> no so I'm really excited to share your story with the listeners Dave so without further ado you ready to I start the show very much so mate Like I mentioned in the intro, mate, despite working in journalism now, it's only been your career until fairly recently. So before we dive into why that was, tell me how your love for writing and journalism started. It came from, in my youth, I've always been a massive comic book guy. So I've always been reading something and that I've always been quite a prolific reader for various reasons, really. It just helps me in lots of aspects in my life. And I didn't do particularly well at school so I've sort of tried to educate myself externally quite a lot of the time and it has just given me a genuine love of books and of the medium and I think writing for me has always been a happy place somewhere I can go and 
just forget about everything and crack on. It's like anything else. When you do it for a job, anything you do as a job becomes a job. But it still feels a lot easier than other things I've done um, and a lot better for me, really. And I've not lost the passion for it. And I still... Football journalism's funny, and I think I know you've talked to Steve and a couple other people sort of on the periphery. You get quite a few people who are quite almost jaded by it and take it for granted. Mm. I still go into a football stadium and sit in a press box and can't quite believe I'm allowed to do this. <laughs> so <laughs> I think about that about the podcast, yeah. mate. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, I think when you lose that, it does become an issue, really. But I am so far from that, it's untrue. Let's go before journalism, if we can, because your dad was a car mechanic. So you decided to follow in his footsteps at the start of this well, journey. And you said to me you were struggling to find your place in the world at this stage. Yeah, so- he, well, he was. He he started very, very early on. He was in the army. He basically, <laughs> in quite a similar fashion, he didn't do particularly well at school, went into the army for a variety of reasons, came out and was... He was doing all sorts of odd jobs, including fixing cars. But the, his main way into the motor trade was he ended up selling them. He got a chance to sell for a bit and just right. really took to it. You know, he'd, he'd found his thing. And he rose up to running a very big car company, a company called C.D. Bramall, who no longer exists. But when Dad took over, they were sort of, I think they had about 10 dealerships, something like that. And when they got sold eventually, I think they had well over a hundred and a load of truck stuff and various others. So he was quite a big figure in the motor trade at one point. And I followed in not really knowing what to do. And I got a job mm. at a company called Perry's in Huddersfield, where they basically employed me because of who my dad was. There's no getting around that. And basically gave me the pick of where I wanted to work. And I ended up in the service department and I was sort of mechanic in and I was on the spanners for a while and then quite similar to my dad really I got a chance just to do something else which was basically to sit on service reception dealing with customers and doing that side and never really looked back I was a very bad mechanic <laughs> but I was an absolutely cracking <laughs> service receptionist and from that I ended up very quickly and very young actually running service departments for a company called JCT 600 who I really loved working for I worked in a place over in Leeds on their Chrysler Jeep and say it side and for a couple of years we had almost the perfect working environment in that we had a set of lads and it is lads it's a male dominated industry I'm not being yeah. sexist when I say that there's biological yeah. sex differences and reasons for that um, isn't there? I'm sure someone but can explain. we uh, we used to like hanging out with each other we would go out on a weekend with each other so it was great just to work with a load of your mates really more than anything else but then I you know a few people moved on and I moved on to running a Peugeot service department down in Shipley and I had a bit of a moment where I realized <laughs> I was like I think I'd have been about 26 at the time. I was already at basically the highest job I could do for potentially Mm. the next 40 years. All that was really left is just to run bigger workshops. And when you run a small one, when you run a big one, it's the same thing. (laughs) It's the same thing. And I sort of carried on in the job for a bit. But then, you know, whether it's you believe in fate or luck or whatever, they decided to merge two departments into into one, and I was offered a redundancy. I was offered a consultation. There was there was like a couple of us for the same job, and I was like, Do you know what? This is someone sending me a sign here. So rather than put somebody else through the 
through the worry of, you know, a consultation period, I'll take the redundancy and I'll go on a different path. And that's exactly what I did. You then got an English mm. degree from the Open University whilst doing some writing and blogging on the side. So who's the Dave we meet at this point? I left JCT and I felt like I had something to prove because I did do badly at school and I wanted to go and get my degree. I've got two older brothers. One is a solicitor who knew he wanted to be a solicitor genuinely when he was 11 years old. And our Paul <laughs> is a building surveyor and he's extremely good at his job. And I always felt a little inferiority complex and I wanted to go and get an English degree. I didn't have any A-levels and you're supposed to have one or you're supposed to do a foundation course to get on the Open University course. So I had to lie <laughs> and really start from a really start from scratch and it was very very difficult because I'd been so long out of a learning environment to go and do that but I felt by starting to blog and write a bit on the side it was helping me with the uni course because it was just helping my mind work in a certain way and my friend had a really small blog called In Bed with Maradona and he said well why don't you very homoerotic (laughs) why don't you uh, come on board as a as an editor and I was like well, I mean, I don't think my own writing's that good. And now you're asking me to sort of edit other people's. And he said, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. So I started doing that. And yeah, it changed my mindset, really. The motor trade is, well, was, it's different now. But you come out of it with a certain set of views and a certain set of values, I would say, particularly when you've come into it early from school because you've not done particularly well. And really coming out of it and doing that degree and blogging and everything else put me on a different path on lots of different levels. And I just basically embarked on four or five years of re-educating almost every value I thought I held at one point or another. And coming out of the motor train doing that degree over sort of two and a half, three years was quite a big period in my life where I changed a hell of a lot. I look back on that time with yeah, with a lot of joy, really. It really did feel like a kick up the arse I needed. You then began your move into quote unquote <laughs> proper journalism. You started your own publishing company. You began working at Opta and that led you to your work with the Huddersfield Examiner <laughs> today. When did you truly feel like a sports journalist in your own right? Uh, I still don't sometimes. I, <laughs> I was about to ask. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. It, I think... It goes back to what I was saying before. I th- I think if you start to think about it too much and analyse it too much, you do lose the love of it a little bit. I still don't consider myself a journalist. I still consider myself just somebody who loves football, who loves writing, who has found a way to combine the two. It's great. With Opta, I've done some really big games. I've done games all around the country, but you don't necessarily write about them because when you're doing stuff for Opta, you're collecting stats and feeding back to up to what's happening in the games various other things with a lot of the town stuff obviously I am doing what you would class as journalism on it but it just feels I don't know I don't feel like a charlatan I've worked bloody hard to get here but I do feel like because I haven't taken a conventional route I don't quite feel like a journalist but I feel like I deserve to be there now so I'm happy if you know what I mean I get what you mean mate You've spoken about it a little bit already, but with the industry, you did want to discuss how there's a necessity a lot of young sports and specifically football journalists, I should say, feel to make football 
their side hustle hobby from mm. quite an early age as a way to build that experience base and things to reference when they're going for those early job applications. Given that hyper-competitive nature of the industry, do you think it makes these lads or girls or women stop enjoying it as much as they would purely just watching or playing it? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot of, through working with IBWM and doing what I'm doing now and speaking to... I'm 43, but I'm relatively young comparatively to to a lot in the industry. There's a lot of people who are sort of five or six years older who've been doing it for a long time. And John yeah. <laughs> Henry Winter. <laughs> but the ones that keep the love of it are the ones that a are always become the biggest names. So if you look at someone like Henry Winter, Henry Winter is a when he's in a press box, he's just the nicest man you could wish to meet. He seems like he, it as he well. yeah. comes up and he's introduced himself to me a couple of times. He wouldn't know who I am. He's got absolutely no reason, so he's introduced himself to me twice, both times completely unsolicited. You know, he's just come over and said, you know, I'm Henry Winter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And he's just the way he conducts himself and goes about it. You can see he still actually loves doing what he's doing. He still loves mm. being at a game. There are other journalists, big name journalists who I won't name, but who are the complete opposite. And I would argue it shows in their writing. The embittered yeah. sort of style. Yeah. You mean. And yeah. it is a democratic process. Those people can't just carry on with that shtick forever. They end up getting forced out by people coming through. But my advice to younger people is to, you have to be serious about it if you want to go into this as a, as, as a job. Okay. There's no getting away from that. But the minute you forget it's it's a privilege is when you're in trouble. That's the issue. And it is a privilege. You know, me and Steve Chicken on the Undersfield Daily Examiner, we get paid to watch football. I mean, how mental is that? We get paid to watch football. And the minute you stop thinking like that, I think you have a little bit of an issue, if I'm honest. Let's talk about your baby, yeah. the book. Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. You already, I think, co-host an England football podcast. So the listeners now know you aren't a fair weather England mm. fan. Tell them why you wanted to write the book and specifically a little bit about Sir Bob. Well, Sir the, the podcast was the Styles Council. We don't do it anymore because we just haven't got time. Chris has changed his job. And, oh, fair. <laughs> yeah, it's just... Just scribbling out yeah. my notes there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm a child of the 80s. They always say that the World Cup nearest your 10th birthday is the one that you fall in love with forever and that was 1990 Mm. for me okay but my first sort of formative football experience was I remember quite distinctly watching games at Mexico 86 and feeling different about football before and after and I remember after Mexico 86 just going down this wormhole of buying Roy the Rovers shoot match my room being covered in posters watching every game recording on v i used to have a vhs where itv's game on a sunday at half time not every week but at half time they would often show the goals from the saturday and i would record the little montage of the goals from the saturday and i would have them built up on this vhs god i'd love to have that again now i just became consumed by it you know absolutely consumed by it and i think the thing about england at that time is that I came out of Mexico 86 as like a six, seven-year-old 
thinking we would be unbeatable because we'd only we'd been cheated out of that World Cup, so we would definitely win the next one. <laughs> you know, no problem whatsoever. It's always that, always that feeling. Yeah. Next year, lads. Next next tournament, we're going to win it. Next year, and tournament. We went to Euro '88, and I remember being like, I'd have been nine, I think, at the time, and I was so convinced we were going to win it because because of what had happened and I remember again consuming everything about it watching every game and England were absolutely woeful absolutely terrible but it didn't change my view I still love them and Bobby Robson felt like I didn't really understand the role of a manager at the time but I just knew he was different from other people who were doing the same job as him and by the time they went to 1990, I wasn't old enough to be reading newspapers or understanding the coverage, etc. But, you know, you only had to watch Grandstand and Sports Night when England played and you'd have Jimmy Hill laying into him and various others laying into him. And I felt even at that young age, quite a sort of sense of a, quite a, like a protective thing with him. I, I don't want to use the word grandfather, but that's how it almost felt. You know, it was like somebody mm. attacking my grandfather and I always had this love of him and then he disappears and he he disappears to go and manage abroad but it's in an age when there's no internet the newspapers aren't interested in covering what's happening in a Dutch league or a Portuguese league you might every so often get one line when he's won something but that's it so he then becomes this figure that disappears and then came back later on in my life when he comes back to Newcastle and he does another magnificent job there. And he was just an incredibly endearing bloke. So I then started digging and Mm. doing some research and looking properly at his time with England. And yeah, it's a bit of a gift to a writer really, because you have the perfect narrative structure in that he comes in as a bit of a hero he has a bit of a stuttering start, but then Mexico 86, you know, he was he was lauded after that tournament. He'd already been hounded a little bit beforehand, but he was lauded after that tournament because of this sense of injustice and how we'd gone out to Diego Zambo, etc. And then it all comes crashing down at Euro 88 and he spends two years just under the worst kind of abuse. I mean, absolutely vile, vile abuse. And then somehow he ends up a hero, you know, somehow he leaves mm. and the Daily Mirror are calling him a hero and, you know, lauding him on their front and back page after hounding him for two years. It's just an insane mm. journey, really. And when I wrote it and when I went through it, it was just you couldn't believe some of the stuff I just kept stumbling across. It was crazy. I want to talk about the media in a little bit, but Bobby Robson, the man holistically, I think history has given him a saintly aura mm. and that's justified in some areas reading the book and not so much in others. Let's talk about the positives first. Can you briefly talk about him fighting for his teammates to be paid more as a player at Fulham back in those days, which was yeah, pretty Yeah, he, he had been, to go back even before then, he'd really been groomed as an FA man. They really saw something different in him. Right back to Wolves Winterbottom, the very first England manager, had him and Don Howe on coaching training before coaching training existed. And this is when they were still very young players. At one point, Walter Winterbottom, Robson was one of his players and in his England squad, and Winterbottom had him out scouting opponents for him. That's how highly he rated his opinion. And he came from a working-class background, a mining town, and he had an incredible sense of fairness and what people deserved that he kept throughout his career. And 
when he was at Fulham, he was a bit of a club legend there and he did fall out with people who he considered friends because he did fight for his teammates to be paid what he believed was a proper wage. And these points of principle keep popping up in his career where he does fight and it does cost him at times. But there were other stories that I couldn't substantiate, which really (laughs) frustrated me. But a lot of sort of folk tales of things along these lines that he did, causes he contributed to in the game and other teams where they were having similar struggles and he essentially became a almost like a de facto shop steward for them without ever stepping into the limelight or going on the record anywhere. As I said, I couldn't mm. include anything like that in the book and I don't know if they're true because you can't substantiate them in fact. But the fact that there was more than one tale like that <sighs> tells me there was probably something in it. And when mm. you read into his life and his career, it would absolutely fit the mould of who he was and, and what he wanted to do. And even when he was a manager, you know, he was forever fighting for his players and he wanted to give people a chance. It was as big a downfall as it was a positive in some respects. But that innate sense of fairness really did come across. And I think that's one of the reasons that I think one of the key things with Bobby Robson is that he's a very real person. He's not a Jose Mourinho or a Pep Guardiola who feels like they're sort of an ethereal figure up on a pedestal. Bobby Robson was a was a real bloke who, you know, he was as happy on the shop floor as he was in a press conference with some of the best coaches in the world, etc. When it comes to Bobby supporting other players' mm. mental health, he always made a point of giving a small speech to all the newcomers. And I guess those things can really make yeah. a difference to a player's mental health and feeling welcomed. But for his own mental health, there's a point in the book before a Euro 90 qualifying match against Denmark where his anxiety is really beginning mm. to affect him. The consequences of what would happen if he lost, the growing negativity from the fans and the media. If he was going through that in today's era, do you think he'd have been better supported or even been able to speak, maybe not openly, but openly internally because his red flags have been picked up or not? I don't know. I don't know because the contexts are so different. If you look at newspapers and the way we have this blanket coverage of football now, if you want to know about, to use him again, if you just purely because of the Robson link, but if you want to know about Jose Mourinho, if you want to know a bit about his private life, what he favours tactically, what his history is even as a player before he becomes a manager... If you want to go game by game through his club career as a manager, if you want to look at his 10 greatest games, you can just go to Google. Back when Robson was doing it, the world was such a different... As I was looking through the newspapers, the standards were so different. I won't use the words, but there were still some pretty offensive words being used to describe foreign football teams and foreign football players right up until the end of Bobby Robson's time. And that's 1990. We're not talking about back in the 50s and 60s where we can make all these excuses about racism, etc. And the idea of mental health being taken more seriously, I would like to think in today's media they would have done, but it wouldn't have got to the point where it did anyway, which is where they were just outright lying (laughs) about him and about his personal life and about various other aspects. And they were getting comedians to write pages of Bobby Robson jokes 
Robson out cluffing and stuff. Yeah, I saw that. And that they was were, pretty horrible. You know, he was flawed. He did have an affair, but that was blown up by the media into something it never was. It was it was turned into this sort of huge love story and all this sort of thing. And it was nothing like that at all. And he hurt his family and he hurt his wife. And he never really got over that either. He carried that burden the rest of his life. But then the newspapers, once that had died down, just leapt on this other story of this other woman who he had never met, who he had allegedly had this huge passionate affair with. They ran two weekends worth of copy on it. Then as they're flying out to Italia 90, they decide that this woman's husband should have his say completely out in the blue. This story is from months and months before. And the team fly out to Italia 90, and just before they go, he has to give a sort of infamous press conference that was fists drawn. It really was. And he'd said it's just a pack of lies. It's just absolute rubbish. And you can see the strain on him. You can see the strain on him. It had been announced he was leaving. All of this has been dragged up, and it's all just complete lies that are incredibly hurtful to families, you know, and people who aren't. It's drawing more and more people into this sphere. I would like to think that that couldn't happen again, just outright lies. But I think the way media coverage is now, there are other issues, you know, with the blanket mm. nature. There are, it may not be as vicious and it may not be outright lies, but there are other ways that I think managers suffer and are hounded and are chased. And you can go further and look at celebrity, you know, people like Caroline Flack who get so drawn into this world of media that they essentially think that they're, personality and their career lives and dies by what is written by other people so you just don't know Mm. because the contexts are just so wildly different i don't think they're better i'll be brutally honest with you Mm. but they are wildly wildly different no that's a good point mate and i think as well when i was reading through the book i'm not going to say the headlines but there was one after the saudi arabia game which i actually made my jaw Mm. drop actually when i read it i was thinking how the hell was that allowed to be Mm. signed off it's one thing to call for someone to be sacked because of incompetence consistent poor performance irrespective of you know your disagreement or agreement with it you know that's par for the course in most countries when it comes to football the comment which actually angered me personally was one from a journalist called Nigel Clark Mm. before a friendly game against Greece. And he tells ITV cameras, I'm here to fry Bobby Mm. Robson. How did you react when you found that out during the research? That was just one example of several similar things over that period. And, you know, I even write in the book, it was just incredibly inconvenient for them that England went and won. And that was the attitude at the time, because they realised that Kicking Bobby sold papers. That was the big thing. And you had this, without getting too deep, you had a sort of cultural war between the Red Tops. They really were a huge circulation war and they were drawing in people like Elton John and various other people. It was a a race of lies, really. This is the thing. As soon as they realised that one of the ways they could sell papers was kicking Bobby Robson, the coverage was just next level. And... Nigel Clark was one of his biggest detractors. And when Bobby Robson actually left the England job, he actually became friends with Nigel Clark because, again, Bobby was had a great understanding of what he believed people's roles were. And he didn't bear grudges in most cases. He did in a couple, it would be fair to say. Not no blame him, to be but honest. But that, that attitude, I mean, the Saudi Arabia game again, 
the coverage after that, you know, like papers running four page specials because they've drawn one one in this sort of nonsense friendly that nobody wanted to be involved in anyway. It was purely a vehicle for the FA to make money. Robson himself didn't want to take an England team there. It was supposed to be an England B game, essentially. And yeah, the coverage is just sickening, really. But when you read back through it, it's also universal. It's not like there was a couple of newspapers who are better than than the others. The Guardian would run a piece kicking Bobby Robson, as you would expect from The Guardian, a bit more detailed and a bit more technical than others. But then they would have another piece elsewhere from one of their columnists that would be a bit more measured and a bit more of a a look at the sort of systemic problems across the whole. But, you know, they were all drawn into it. They were all doing it. And, you know, in often cases, it was based on very, very little, very, very little. And Mm. England wins, it sounds mad to say it, but for about a year, England wins were sort of being greeted with a mild air of disappointment, which is just crazy. I want to move on to a quite dark period of the book you write about, Dave. And it's a dark period, for, I think, for this country, which was against the backdrop of Boy Robson's England, was the height of mm. football hooliganism of the 70s and into the 80s. Now, there's a part of me that feels quite thankful I didn't grow up going to football games during this period because my dad is 69 and he said there were certain grounds where you basically took your life Mm. in your hands by going to them. And I think my dad's not really prone to hyperbole. And I was quite shocked when he told me that when I was growing up as a kid. Can you give the listeners some context here? Because I talk a lot, well, I used to talk a lot about this term toxic masculinity, which sometimes I feel is quite overused and a bit pointless in some context today. But this really felt like toxic masculinity at its peak back then. Yeah, I think English football is often a reflection of where the English class, working class male is. And in the 50s, after the war, English football was a place where work was respected above all else. And it culminates with winning the 1966 World Cup, which a lot of people within football were very unhappy that England won in the way they did, which was very workmanlike, which was quite rugged, quite physical. But that's where England was. And then as you get into the late 60s and 70s, there's a little bit more style. There's a little bit more flair. There's slightly more spare cash floating about. So people can be a little bit more expressive. And that was reflected in the football. And you suddenly had people like sort of Stan Bowles and various others that... Frank yeah, Worthington, Big um, Frank. The pressure was on to get them into the England team, but they still had managers who were still from this era of where work was prized over all else. And again that football just being a reflection of society holds true. As you get into the 80s, I think it really, you know, everything comes to pass, really. You had a very disenfranchised working class, a government who were demonising them, and essentially they decided to just play into it. They decided to just become the animals they'd been told they were for the last five to ten years. And... Football violence had existed for a long time. You know, the 60s and 70s are not without incidents, but the 80s was where it goes mainstream because effectively it becomes a lot more organised. It goes from groups of lads just meeting up to groups of lads meeting up in certain places, certain times to meet other groups of lads. It's having actual strategies at certain grounds as to how to, in inverted commas, take the ground. It's knowing where to go to meet 
certain groups of fans before and after games. A lot changes. You get wars at service stations and everything else. And national yeah. front, yeah. and then you have the yeah. national front come in, who are openly funding some of this, who are piggybacking it to get new members, who are literally travelling around the world watching England just with the expressed attention of outright racism genuine swastika flags in england crowns etc when you it's just mm. absolutely crazy and the high profile incidents of the decade you sort of everybody knows about and you don't really need to go into but every single game there was something whether it was small scale or wide scale there was something and 1985 was where it really you had the high school tragedy you had the 14-year-old Birmingham fan being crushed by a wall at a riot at Birmingham v Leeds game. There'd been incidents all through the year. There was a Sunderland-Chelsea game where Clive Walker was threatened on the pitch. It all sort of comes to a head, and that's when the government does reacts to it incredibly poorly, demonises the fans, goes about it in completely the wrong way, and then it becomes a point of principle for football fans that even football fans who aren't hooligans begin to sympathise with the demonisation of everybody. So you're the battle lines are drawn. And it was a tough time to be England manager because Bobby Robson used to spend an awful lot of time apologising for the behaviour of a large group of England fans. But the big turning point is Hillsborough because even before the internet age, there was a genuine feeling that, hang on a sec, all of this is being lumped on football fans and there are other factors in play. So almost immediately after that, there is a, a shift in perception with lots within the game. And it becomes from this group that we have to eliminate and they have to go and they're everything that's wrong to, hang on a sec, how big is this group? Because we're reading that such and such happened, but what actually happened was this. So for example, you get Pete Davies, who is a Guardian journalist, who goes away to watch England play Sweden, comes back to see all these headlines about England fans running rampant in the square, smashing windows, turning cars over, fighting in lumps. And he was there and he was in the square and he came back with all the England fans and he didn't see any of this. And you start to see the start of a tide turning because he puts in print, I didn't see any of this. And Robson handled himself with a hell of a lot of dignity in a period that, didn't have a lot on both sides and I think that Hillsborough is the worst disaster that has ever happened in English football on a lot of levels yeah that and and Bradford Fire I would say yeah I think the thing about the Bradford Fire was that was in 1985 as well and that was down to essentially down to negligence whereas the Hillsborough one was down to negligence but then they tried to immediately and shift the, cover the blame up. Yeah, and there was the cover-up mm. and mm. it was because of that that you had when Saturday comes instantly printing covers basically saying that all of this is going to get shifted onto football fans instead of the authorities looking at their own their own actions and that was a big turning point because whatever the government is in power whatever's happening a government should fear its people. You know, the people shouldn't fear its government. And there was a shift at that point where the government realised they couldn't just keep trying essentially to bully football into things like identity card schemes and various other things that weren't going to work or make any difference. 
they realised they actually needed football people to start helping other football people eliminate these problems. And it was a long road. It's a long road. And it was a, mm. like you say, it was a very, very dark time, very, very dark time. But they did manage to emerge from it, which is, is quite, when you look at where football is now, it's, you know, worlds away. Worlds apart, yeah. Before we reflect on your journey, Dave, and finish off with a couple of questions about the book, I just want to talk about a couple of players <laughs> through a mental health lens if we can. So number one is goalkeeper Peter Shilton because his England career came to an end after Euro 90. He'd been struggling with a gambling addiction, which he's only just started actually being really mm. open about and campaigning on now. I think he even had to deny allegations of domestic abuse at one point. Is that how high the stigma was that as a 70 plus year old man I think he is now now is the time he feels comfortable speaking yeah the problem was that anything you said at the time you were just opening yourself up to day after day of misery that's the reality the one thing he did fight against at the time was there was headlines around domestic abuse and they weren't telling the full story and he did fight against that at the time because he believed he had cause to but even then as you read papers a few months on, he is described as domestic abuser Peter Shilton. And again, it's that thing of the context being so different. Shilton as a character was quite difficult to manage, but Robson loved him mm. because he always performed for him. He always did a job for him. But Shilton fell out with people several times. And I think that things like if you'd have just said oh yeah I've got a gambling addiction or I've got an addiction to this that and the other it's almost not worth the pain and the hassle it would have caused that's the judgment they had to make one of the turning points with the England players at 1990 is the hostess story where it was an awakening for a few of them because they got an inkling as to what Robson had been under when this very like barely anything in it story about a hostess being sacked who had been working with the England players at the hotel, looking after them, etc. And it had been suggested that there was a little bit more to it. All just absolute nonsense, completely fabricated, nothing in it whatsoever. But then it goes in the papers and the, all the England players have a day of their wives and girlfriends and families ringing them because they're trying to, <laughs> they're trying to find out what's gone on. So for someone like Shilton, I think the idea of being open and honest, yeah, it would just never have even entered his world at that point. I mean, it was hard enough for, you know, the likes of Tony Adams and Paul Merson to do it a few years later. The thought of Shilton doing it in the 80s, no chance. There's another very famous player who was in that team called mm -hmm. Gaza, and he grew up in the media spotlight. He was emotionally unstable on the pitch. He was hard to control when being given instructions. Now we both know, and I think most football fans who have done any sort of history know how public his breakdown was on his roller coaster of life. And I'm very happy that he's, I think, mm. got to a stable place in his life at the moment. Given the rise of social media, and we've already kind of answered this question a little bit, but would it have been as bad if it had happened now that there is greater mental health awareness, but massive explosion in social media to document I imagine all of his probably public indiscretions would it have been better or worse I think he would have been better handled but that's not to say he wouldn't have ended up in exactly the same place the thing about Gaza people don't realize is that he came out of Italia 90 and if you if you didn't live in that period it's hard to describe how big a figure he was for 12 months he was 
David Beckham and Princess Diana rolled into one. It was that level of following his every move of of complete adulation. And he was on T-shirts that he authorised and some he didn't. He was launching tracksuit lines, trainers with Brooks. He was doing VHS videos with Danny Baker. He was filling White Hart Lane every time he warmed up, never mind actually played 90 minutes. He was the biggest thing around. If you throw social media into that, I think that lens would have been even bigger. But I think he would have got a lot of help. I think he would have been far better advised because I think there were people who, to be brutally honest, saw him as a cash cow immediately. Lectures or hangers yeah, on. Yeah not, yeah, not in a sort of really criminal, I'm going to exploit him way, but they realised very early on, hang on a sec, we can ride this to huge bank balances. And... I just think the thing about Paul was that, for instance, he didn't drink a lot, which is a mad thing to say. He'd sit in the pub and people would buy him drinks. And I've had a lot of people tell me this. The floor around him was always wet because he would drink half his pint and he would just quietly chuck the other half away. But there was a flip that switched that, you know, when that becomes a constant, when that's your whole life, eventually you do start drinking the other half a pint and eventually things snowball and... So, yeah, I think he would have been better supported. I think he would have had a lot better help. But would he have been in the same situation regardless? I think there's a chance of that because the level of fame was just so all-pervading, so so full-on. It Mm. is difficult to describe how walking around in Huddersfield and seeing people with T-shirts just with a picture of Gaza crying on, saying they'll always be in England. And it was just a crazy period for a good six to 12 months and there's an interview with Wogan that I've watched a million times where Wogan knows and he says to him in the interview it's just shortly after the World Cup and he he literally says to him you need to be careful you know you need to be careful and Gaza says oh yeah I know I know but it sort of brushes off him sort of bounces off him because at the time he feels completely invincible but I think there are a lot of people who knew what was coming and were very fearful for him. But yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question because I think social media is a huge plus for a lot of people in so many ways. And I think it's a massive negative. And I think for someone like Gaza, the thing that fills me with fear is the videos and the pictures and, the you know, it slumped in the corner of this pub and that pub. So who knows, really? Despite all of the abuse that Robson took throughout his England career, when the new manager, Graham Taylor, was struggling and receiving mm. the same abuse, he still offered to come back to the job. Is that the true mark of the man, do you think? He always believed it was the number one job in world football. He was a staunch believer that England had given the world football. He believed that in his bones. And there are, you know, look, we can talk to David Goldblatt and various others and we can debate the various merits of football and where it came from and who was playing it at what point. But... If nothing else, England codified football and began to give it a structure and a set of rules. And we certainly, while I I don't hold that we necessarily birthed it, but we certainly gave rise to the modern game. And Robson really believed that. And he believed as a nation we'd done that. He was an England player himself, of which he was incredibly proud, unbelievably proud he would have been groomed as an FA man so he had a sort of absolute belief in the power of this body 
that were running football. And he just genuinely believed that it was the most important job in football. You know, rightly or wrongly, you can debate the merits and what have you, but you have to look at the context of the time. That was what he believed in his soul. And despite it all, he would have come back. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. And Graham Taylor dealt with things differently. And I, I, there's a book in the Graham Taylor time that I am in the process of writing. I don't know how long it will take me to do, but... I think there are significant differences in the way the two dealt with it. But Robson was absolutely sincere, absolutely sincere. He'd have come back to whatever level of abuse there was, no problem whatsoever, just because he had absolute faith in the power of sitting in the England dugout, which is quite remarkable when you think about some of the later managers we've had that have sort of seen it as just a job or just a role. And I think, weirdly, it's one of the things that... Gareth Southgate has got going for him. He does feel the weight of the role and he does understand the responsibility. And I think when you look at sort of a Capello or even a Sven Goran Eriksson, it was just mm. a job to them. I'm not necessarily someone who feels, oh, it must be an English manager. It must be an Englishman. I just want the best person to get the best out of a group of English players. I think that's the important side of thing. But you do need somebody who understands the weight of it and the weight of the role. And I do think Southgate is the first person to get that. I don't even think Roy Hodgson did. You could argue was of a similar era of Bobby Robson. Robson just had a very special relationship with that role in his own mind. Mm. And yeah, he was flawed, but he was just a very real man. He was just a very real mm. man, normal man. And that's, I think why he engenders the the love that he does and as a final question then let's reflect on this journey Dave what did writing the book and I guess journalism itself taught you about yourself it taught me that I in a practical sense it taught me that I had the capacity to learn and to do this which at one point I didn't think I did but also I think it made me I think it makes you look at your own values a little bit and it you can't help but wonder if I'd have been older and I'd have been in a press conference, which side would I have been? Would I have felt like I do now about Bobby Robson or would I have been one of those ones sharpening my pencil? You know, it does make you question that because football journalism has changed a lot, a lot in that time. And then it's changed a lot in very recent history with the birth of blogging and football dedicated football sites who have sprung up and are challenging, you know, the newspapers, which at one time, were people's own yeah they were people's yeah. only media consumption so yeah it does make you wonder but i think that without sounding trite i do often think right okay what would bobby robson think here or what would bobby robson do because i'm not i'm not a religious man i don't have any religious beliefs but i do think bobby robson was genuinely because he was a real human being with a set of values i think that a lot of people could do far worse than aspiring to. I do often sort of try and put myself in that position and think, okay, what would Sir Bobby think about this and go from there? I think it probably makes me slightly too sympathetic, if anything, on some in some respects. <laughs> Even did that Carlsberg advert, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, like I say, I think it does make me slightly too sympathetic sometimes. But I always, even in my football writing around Huddersfield Town, I always try and think of the humans involved. So, for example, when we cover B-team games or when we're talking about young players, we never go in and leather them and say, oh, they've had a terrible game. Even if they have had a terrible game, because... 
it's all part of the learning process and it it serves absolutely no one to go in and say oh they were absolutely rubbish or give them like a two out of ten in the player ratings because there's just the context around that is just not the same as say a Jonathan Hogg putting in a bad performance or somebody else who's 500 games into their career it has impacted on me in that way I think We've talked about your professional journey, Dave. I want to go a bit deeper now and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life in Brighton, teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Dave we meet here? Well, my whole personality and life was shaped by the move up to Huddersfield, really, because when we lived in Brighton, we moved up a week before my first day of the first year at secondary school. So I did all my infants and junior schooling in Brighton. And it was it was a very different time. Brighton and Huddersfield could not be more <laughs> diametric. I should know. I lived in Brighton for three yes, years for uni. <laughs> yeah, could not be more diametrically opposed, really, on lots of levels. And we were... <laughs> when I was at Brighton, I was at Hangleton Junior School. I was obsessed with football I was just playing all the time you have this world that you live in where the sun's always shining and you have no cares and responsibilities when I came up to Huddersfield as I said we moved the week before I started secondary school and Rastrick High was where I went and Rastrick High is now a very very nice school almost completely rebuilt grant maintained fantastic results when I went there it was a war zone (laughs) It was not a great school at all. And there was a BuzzFeed quiz a couple of years ago where you had to, it was scores out of 100 where you had to go through and it's basically how middle class was your secondary school. And you had to go through and lots of people were getting sort of like, you know, 50, 60 and what have you. Rastrick got four, four points out of 100. <laughs> That's probably what mine would and be. And I... I couldn't quite believe that result. So a couple of people I went to school with, I asked them to do it and they came back and went, yeah, four. (laughs) So it wasn't a school experience that was a complete misery. It was just a very, very different school experience. And I was never, I was never a kid who was so naughty that he was continually suspended and expelled. I did get suspended at one point for being caught with drugs at a school disco, but that's another story along with my mates. But as I said, it was just a very, very different experience. And the thing that got me through it more than anything was football, because I've always been a decent player, fortunately, because I was so obsessed. I was just constantly kicking a football about. When I got to Rastrick, I had a very difficult first couple of months, but then there were some trials for the school team. And I immediately got into the school team and I scored a hat-trick in our first game against Moorend High. And it just gave me a, a set of mates suddenly. I suddenly knew people, not necessarily in my class, but I suddenly had a, a little group to hang around with. And I was a little bit of a, to coin a phrase, a little bit of an in-betweener. I was neither one thing nor the other. And it was quite a tough first couple of years and then you settle into a groove. But I think the big toll from the move really was on my education because like it went downhill because my personality changed and as I said I wasn't setting fire to classrooms and knocking teachers out but your social status becomes incredibly important and you know things changed and I got some GCSEs I got no A-levels 
I don't know. It was an odd time. A lot of people look back and say, oh, you know, your school days, happiest days of your life. Not really for me. I think junior and infants, I just didn't have a care in the world and they are what they are for everyone. But secondary school was quite a difficult time. And that just shaped everything. That really was the before and after moment in my life, if I'm brutally honest with you. And I think mentally, I think the move, I think it's left me with, I have a a little bit of an anxiety issue quite often. And again, I think it's around the move and it's, I'm very much a home bird now, as my wife would tell you, you know, I'm not great with huge changes, huge sweeping changes, et cetera. And you look back and you go, okay, well, any therapist in the world is going to just draw an immediate red line back to the move. And it was difficult to be wrenched away at that point because not to hark on about it, but again, it's pre-internet. So it's not like you can just stay in the WhatsApp conversations and <laughs> follow people on Facebook, etc. So it was just such a huge change in circumstance that it couldn't help but imprint on me, really. You said when you were at school, you got bullied for a yeah. certain period. So was that before you managed to kind of worm your way into the football team and get that social yeah. acceptance or did it come after? Yeah, for, it went on for a little bit because of my accent, because I was a bit different because I was a bit strange and struggling to fit in with anyone. I had a few mates but who all ditched me in certain situations because they were going through their own thing and trying to find their own little path in the world and you know that's absolutely fair enough but the first few months in particular were rough and my mum was struggling with the move. I caught my mum in tears a couple of times because she had never lived up north and she Again, it's so hard to tell people the difference between Huddersfield and Brighton. Honestly, (laughs) like they are different planets. So it was tough on everyone. My dad was working a hell of a lot. We'd moved for his job. So he was throwing himself into it because otherwise, you know, what's the point? So he was working a hell of a lot. My oldest brother, Adam, had gone off it was a weirdly fitting point to do it because he went off to uni not that it didn't affect him but it didn't affect him in the same way because he was going off on on another part of his life and my brother Paul was going off to polytechnic anyway he ended up at Huddersfield Tech and it it was again a weirdly fitting point for him to go and do something new it was quite tough on me and it was quite tough on mum but I think you just have to find your way, have to plot your way, really. And once I got into the football team, almost instantly things got a little bit better. It wasn't great the first couple of years at Rastrick, but the third, fourth and fifth year were much better because I was more settled, because I was one of the better footballers. So that brings like a you know weird level of... Yeah. Social status is yeah. massive there. I mean, um, crikey. And... I eventually got myself a girlfriend and you do all the teenage things you do and all that sort of thing. And yeah, that was much better. But the the first couple of years were rough. And I think at the end of the second year, they mixed all the classes up. And that was quite a big thing again, because again, for someone who's not great with change, I remember that summer being quite a tough one, anxiety wise. I was worried about what school was going to look like when I went back in. But in the end, inadvertently, it actually worked out a lot better in truth. Have you managed to get better at dealing with that anxiety as you've gotten older? Have you uh, developed any tools along yeah, the way? Yeah, no. You know, I have coping strategies. <laughs> Most of them revolve around my wife. It does flare up at times. You know, there's no denying that it does flare up at the times. I always have a, a little base level of anxiety 
I think like everybody does that I can cope with no issue whatsoever but a lot of it is based around huge changes or big things you know everybody feels anxiety at those points and feels a bit of trepidation but mine can become a little bit all you know it, it very on top and take over mm-hmm. my life a little bit and that's when I do have things that help and a person that helps me enormously and and I can get my head back right but I don't think it's something that's ever going to leave me I think it's just something you learn to live with and learn to cope with really you spoke about your wife there and I've got on my running order the (laughs) wife as a subheading so tell me how and why she's become such a pillar of positivity for you me and Penny met when I was at school the wheels were off a little bit and I was a little bit too much of an idiot for her to consider at the time and she ended up going out with one of my best friends. I ended up going out with one of her best friends and we kept bouncing into situations where we were together weirdly. It was a little bit predestined, I would say. We also had a couple of dalliances with each other at school, but no more than that. And then when we left, I was single at the time. She was still going out with a friend of mine. Eventually she split up with him and she rang me. Wow, she rang you a week later and said look do you want to go out for a drink and forewarned me that nothing was going to happen but it would be nice to go out and have a drink so we went out and had a had a drink on a Saturday night we had a sort of very tentative kiss at the end and then the next day I told my brother I was going to end up marrying her because I had been in love with her realistically since I was about 14 I just didn't really know it and we were, at the time, we were, I think, 18, 19, and finally being together and the circumstances being right was quite overwhelming, but I knew that was it, and I needed to get myself sorted out a little bit, and she was quite open in the fact that I needed to get myself sorted out a little bit too, which I did, and, you know, we had a brilliant six months together then she went off to uni and she was sort of quite open in that look you know I'm going off to uni it's the other end of the country this is how it's going to be for three years if you want to put up with that you can but if not I completely understand and I was like no it's I'm absolutely fine with that and then when she came out of uni you know it was straight into okay move in together get married together and she's just I don't believe in sort of soulmates and all that sort of thing, but this feels uh, like it, mate. <laughs> I have a a sort of overly dependent relationship with my wife. She is just everything revolves around her, really. And we have a relationship where I think we've ruined ourselves for anyone else. You know, if if we split up tomorrow, I don't think either of us would know what to do with ourselves or how to conduct ourselves with other people. We have our own little language, you know, you have your own little rhythms and beats and pulses and we have a daughter together now and yeah, 23 years in, she can still reduce me with a certain look to just being like the 14 year old boy who first saw her at Rastrikai in a red coat and Doc Martens and curly permed hair and was just like, I don't know what I'm feeling, but I know it feels different and (laughs) yeah. I just really love her, you know, and I don't, I'm not bothered about admitting that. I think there's, there was a strain of blokes and comedy, etc. when we were growing up where it was always, ah, oh, the wife this and the wife that. And I always had an innate sense of, if you don't like her, why are you with her? <laughs> you know, the thing about being with Penny is I've never been 
ashamed to admit that I adore her, absolutely adore her, adore everything about her, and I wouldn't change anything about her. I've always felt the same. I've always felt the same. I'm just hopelessly in love with her, is the long and short of it. Where would you be without her? And more importantly, where would your mental health be without her then? Well, I would have fallen into some other relationship, I'm sure. But uh, I honestly don't know, because I had struggled to settle and obviously we've talked about the move being a defining thing and I'm not great with change etc I don't think I'd have been somebody who would have just passed from one person to the next person to the next person I think I think there's a good chance because weirdly after saying how happy I'm with my wife one of the things that she would say is one of my defining characteristics is every so often I like a little bit of time on my own and I am certainly not afraid of my own company (laughs) I quite like to retreat for a little bit just to I like to have a little bit of a reset now and then so I think eventually I probably would have just got into a little world where I was just quite happy on my own plugging away on my own I'm sure I probably would have ended up with a very conventional nine to five very normal in inverted commas life if I'm brutally honest with you where my mental health would be I've no idea really because I think I probably would have just settled into some sort of groove that wouldn't have really tested me or pushed me in in any respect really the final part of your journey you wanted to discuss Dave was your recent experiences of COVID because it's fair to say that they wiped you out when it happened so how did it affect both your mental health and physical health and I guess as well what did it teach you so the first time I had COVID I didn't know about it I woke up one Friday morning and I couldn't taste anything and I couldn't smell anything and I said to Penny okay well we kind of know what this is don't we I better go and get a test went and got a test and it came back clear went and got another one and it came back with clear and I was like, well, there's nothing else this can really be. And I rang the doctor and he said, well, you've probably got long COVID from having COVID and not even knowing about it, which for a while really blew my mind because at the time I was doing shopping for Penny's mum and dad and for us because we took the decision that I'd be the one who'd go out and Penny would stay in during lockdown, etc. I went through a a horrible day or two thinking about what if I've passed it on and all this sort of thing. And you do worry about stuff like that. There was a weird day where I went to sleep and Penny decided to let me lie in and I didn't get up till about half past 12, which is quite unusual. I mean, I like my sleep, but I didn't feel ill. It was just bizarre how I just had this mega sleep. And you look back and you think, okay, well, maybe that was slightly off. But then... I sort of got over that because you have to treat it with a point of view of, yeah, I might have been walking around with COVID and not knowing it, but I was being responsible. I was wearing a mask before wearing a mask was a stipulation. I was being very careful with Penny's mum and dad shopping, etc. So it's not like I was just out there <laughs> yeah, going to yeah. illicit alcohol dens and enjoying myself or anything. But then the second time I had it was during the European Championships last summer and oh boy did I know about it I'd had my first jab and I went to a session as we could at the time with my personal trainer me and Penny's personal trainer and she didn't know she had COVID at the time and she let us know on the Thursday I've just tested positive I'm feeling a bit rough you better get a test and weirdly 
Penny told me this as I walked through the door from just having my second jab, which obviously takes a couple of weeks to take effect. Took a test straight away because I had been feeling a little bit, I wouldn't say ill, but just a little bit rough. Yeah. Peaky. Yeah. Took a test straight away and yeah, I was I was positive. And then over the next four days, it hit me like a sledgehammer. I was really, really rough. I didn't get the cough as some did, but it was like being given a dose of extreme exhaustion is the only way I can describe it. I, I couldn't get out of bed. I was isolated in the bedroom. Penny and my daughter, Bo, were downstairs. I had a temperature for four or five days. It was awful, absolutely awful. It put me flat on my back for basically about a month. There's a lot of the Euros I can't remember. I watched, but I can't remember. And it's left me with a little bit of long COVID from that in that my memory is not anything like as good as it used to be. I have weird days where I get COVID for an hour, (laughs) which sounds mad, but I just get this overwhelming sense of tiredness. And then sometimes I get a little temperature. I go to bed have a sleep for an hour and a half two hours and I wake up and I'm absolutely fine and think I have no idea what that was and that makes you worry because it makes you feel like it's still in you it's still part of you and then this Christmas we were gonna have a big family Christmas because my mum's been going through cancer treatment and we've not seen a lot of the family so both my brothers were going round and Bo finished school a week early and we thought okay well that gives us a chance to isolate properly which we did but Bo had a little cold that turned into quite a big cold which Penny then got which I then got we were doing lateral flows and we were fine but then Christmas Eve morning still planning to go over Penny just got a very very faint line on a lateral flow we had to go and get tested and we all had Omicron basically so that was a third time and we missed Christmas, and Bo is 10 years old, she's now 11, but that is a tough thing for her to take on the chin, to say the least. We live in Kirklees, so we were in lockdown when everybody else was playing out as well for a lot of the time, and it has affected my mental health, and it has affected my views on certain things, and I think still having little weird moments since I had COVID as well it's just like you get a constant reminder that you might not be quite right (laughs) just Mm. a constant little back line of that just reminding you at various points yeah you had this thing and I think that a lot of people like I'm not talking about conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers and all that sort of thing I'm as far from that as you know I had both my jabs I've had my booster I cannot even begin to think how bad it would have been if I hadn't because the dose I had in the Mm. summer was awful absolutely awful and that was after one jab and I'm convinced if I hadn't had that one jab it would have been even worse and I think if it had been even worse I probably would have ended up in hospital so I'm fairly cathartic about having your your jabs etc I think we've become quite complacent with COVID and I think Omicron a lot of people having Omicron actually in a weird way hasn't helped because it was a lesser strain you know I'll be honest with you all three of us at Christmas all had it but it was just a heavy cold it wasn't like the dose we had in the summer it was my daughter's second time having it as well and I think it's made a lot of people very complacent about it very complacent about if I'm honest because there's a lot of people who aren't relating COVID to how I felt in the summer they're relating it to how I felt at Christmas which was just a cold Mm. and I think that is sometimes not great for your mental health because 
you're thinking, okay, yeah, but that's not necessarily what COVID is. COVID isn't just having a cold for a lot of people. So we're recording this now and my mum and dad both have COVID at the moment. And fortunately, they're okay. Again, they just have heavy colds, but that's because they've had two jabs and a couple of boosters and it's working, it's doing its job. And you start to, I find myself worrying about COVID a little bit and going a little bit down like a wormhole because you start to think okay but how does this ever end what is the path out of it and I think having it three times makes you hyper aware (laughs) as well Mm. so for example I wear a mask when I go to the shops etc when I'm at a game I rarely wear a mask because I'm outside but also because I have to be careful with the masters and asthmatic, because if I wear them for too long, I can start to cough and wheeze and feel bad. And even now, as you're walking around a supermarket, if you go and have a little bit of a coughing fit, <laughs> you watch the aisle clear. <laughs> Imagine being on a train on the tube, yeah, mate, in London. I've seen fights almost yeah. break out over it. So I think it has changed me mentally slightly. It's like you always have to think about something now. Whereas before you almost feel like you lived your life for a good portion of it without caring about something. And that does affect you. It does. Let's reflect then on your mental health journey. So what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and talk to the 14 year old Dave who was feeling lonely, just started school in Yorkshire or the 27 year old Dave who was having that midlife crisis as a mechanic or the Dave who had just contracted COVID-19 for the first or the second time, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think as try as it sounds, just that, you know, it will be okay. Because I think in all those various periods of my life where I have struggled, the big thing is just to, you lose any sense of reason with yourself. So instead of thinking, well, it's this thing that you need to think about and you need to understand, it's this thing, but it's also this thing. And then there's this thing on top. And then if you think about it, there's also these three other things behind it. And then this could happen and that could happen. The multiplication effect of when you get yourself into that bubble is the thing that I think, if anything, I'd go back and say, look, it will be all right. You have to be careful because you can come across as slightly patronizing. And I've never really received any professional help because I've never really been bad enough to need professional help. But one of the things Penny does is she'll sit and listen. And then after a while, she'll say the thing that I need to hear. And sometimes that's stop being a knobhead. And sometimes it's, I understand, don't worry, it will work out. You know, there are (laughs) different contexts for different situations. And I am incredibly blessed to have somebody who understands me at that level to know what I need at any specific time. So I think I would tell myself, it does work out, don't worry. And there is somebody who who understands. We've come to our final topic of conversation on this podcast, Dave, and it's one I try and have if we have time with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Good. Very good. And it sounds sad to say it, but it runs a little bit in line with the football season. And I like this point when we're coming <laughs> to the end and there's lots of work. I'd always rather be busy than not. So yeah, it's it's really good at the moment. It's really good. And I'm looking forward to the summer and doing a few things that we haven't been able to do with COVID, which helps as well. Excellent. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think because of my schooling at Rastrick and because of my work in the motor trade, etc., 
I have to be completely honest on this and say not till I was in my early 30s because I didn't grow up with a set of values that were particularly self-reflective or you didn't talk about certain things or express certain things. So I would, yeah, in the spirit of honesty, I'd say genuinely probably my early 30s. Tell me about the first conversation you had with someone then about your mental health. So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like A, a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or B, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I think it would have been talking to Penny. I remember we had some quite deep conversations early on about some changes I needed to make and things I needed to sort, (laughs) etc. And I think I had a level of a awareness then really but not a level of awareness where you go oh I've just talked about my mental health and now I feel better just a feeling of finally I think if you were to ask me what love is I think love is finding someone that you can be exactly who you are in front of and we even wear a mask I think when we're in front of certain members of our family oh 100 yeah I think with having those early discussions it was more a realization that not only have I found the person I'm going to be with forever, but there is no need to pretend anymore. There is absolutely no need or reason to pretend at this point in time. And that's quite a significant thing. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say, a social environment, a particular book, film, play, whatever you want, or have you not figured all of them out um, yet? I've not figured all of them out. I think since I had my daughter, I mean, I, I'm a crier. <laughs> since I've had Bo. Both me and Penny, like, I don't know what happens when you have a child, but it's like someone turns a tap on. Certain films and certain media just makes you cry your eyes out. We watched a film last weekend called The Adam Project on Netflix, which is a slightly spiritual successor to a lot of 80s type family films. And there's a lot of quite heavy handed stuff around parenting, etc. But it just punched us both in the tear ducts, you know, like, and... Bo, our 11-year-old, was just like, can you two get a grip, please? Um, (laughs) So I think, yeah, I've not figured them all out. I'm still not great with big changes, but I'm a lot better than I was with them. But, you know, changes are something that always trigger a bit bit of anxiety in me. But it's not the best advice, and it's not advice that works for everyone. But I find that talking about it to a level with Penny and then squashing the rest of it down works for me and I'm completely appreciative and understanding that that doesn't work for everyone because everybody has different levels but I think finding your coping mechanisms is key to coping that's the reality that's a great way to put it mate what tools and methods on the other hand then have you found that have improved your mental health or help you feel better which ones have worked and maybe which ones as well that you've tried but haven't writing helps me enormously I have a novel nearly fully written that nobody will ever read and the reason they will never read it is because I will never send it off for publishing or for anyone else to read it's purely somewhere I can go and put my head for an hour and just you know when times are bad just go to somewhere else for an hour and writing is a big thing that helps for me I think I remember years ago I was quite bad anxiety rise around the changes in my life when I was leaving the motor trade etc I remember reading a few things about techniques about sort of meditation and what we would class as sort of mindfulness and stuff now it just didn't work in any way shape or form for me but I think that's fine I think that what I've come to understand 
is that's absolutely fine. That stuff can be so powerful and literally change other people's minds and I, uh, lives. And I'm so grateful that it works for them. But just because something doesn't work for you, I don't think that's anything to beat yourself up about or worry about. It's it's just about everybody's context and circumstances completely different. And I think once you realise that and can respect that, and it's a little bit like having a child. The one piece of advice I always give to anybody who's having a child, now I've had one, is never listen to anybody's advice about having a child. Because just because something works for somebody or some mother has done this or another mother has done that, it, it may not work for you. Just do the thing that works for you. And I think I feel a little bit the same having tried a little bit of meditation and mindfulness and all that sort of thing. And just realize straight away, okay, this is just not for me. It just doesn't work for me that you just go, okay, we'll try something else. But I think the more important thing is to be open to trying something else, to not go, okay, well, that hasn't worked for me. That's a book shut. I'm never going to try anything else ever again. I think that's the key thing. Find the thing that works and be open to trying the next thing. If it doesn't, that's all it comes down to. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. I'm a big reader, and... I'll be honest with you, I think for me, in terms of this question, it's more about just retreating to the books that I know I love that take me to a completely different place and that take my mind to a different world. So something like, you know, as I said, I'm a big comic book guy. Going back and once a year reading Neil Gaiman's Sandman just takes me to like a completely different place that levels me out. And I can still remember how I felt the first time I read it. And that is key and that helps I think some really good sports book out there that deal with certain journeys and certain struggles can help. But the only thing is I would say about those is rather than sitting here and and naming books, I think for some people, they can be triggers. They can be quite triggering. That's the reality because they don't always help somebody in a similar position. They can go a little bit the other way. So I think you always have to, you have to be careful just saying, Oh, you're a bit like this, you would love this story because, you know, it can have the opposite effect. But I think just throwing myself into some really good writing like Pete Davis's Talia 90 book all played out, which I read once every couple of years, a couple of Jonathan Wilson books that I love, a couple of older books I love, Arthur Hopcraft and, and various others. And the other thing is don't be afraid to try something on a, a subject you've never read before. I've, I've just read a couple of books about the sort of science behind myths and monsters and how a lot of these things like dragons, etc., they come from specific places and specific lore. And again, it's just about putting my head somewhere else. It's just about going retreating into, into something else for a few hours that helps enormously because when you come back in, in the real world, in inverted commas, it always feels a different place. And as a final question, mate, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think be open to other people's problems. I don't want to get political or, or start having a rant or anything like that, but I think we all know the world we're living in at the moment is incredibly divided. I think division causes nothing but problems. And I think being open to people's stories, to people's issues, 
and understanding their own unique set of circumstances and context is is key really and the other thing is i think a lot of people when they say oh somebody needs to talk about it i think it's very easy to forget that sometimes they just need to talk they don't need to talk specifically about their problems but sometimes they just need an evening in the pub talking absolute nonsense for four hours never mentioning the fact they've got an issue or a problem but just again that thing of putting your mind somewhere else for a bit and coming back to it and it feeling different and I think it's not always about saying okay how are you how's your mind how's your mental health how can we help how can we do that it's just more about just sometimes just listening and if that stuff comes up fine if it doesn't you're still making a difference and I think that's important and I think the the toxic masculinity thing I think is very valid and very real I think things are changing I look at the way Bo's being educated and the way she is being brought up with a very different set of values around things you know I'm very hopeful that in in 20 to 30 years we're in a very different place but it is going and I think men do feel different and yeah it's more about acceptance of not everybody who has an issue wants to solely talk about that issue for three hours and it's your job to help them and sort them out. I think it's just an understanding that just being there is sometimes enough. David Hartrick, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking no to me, No problem. Mate. Thanks for having me. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Just Check In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Dave for being my special guest on this episode's pod and, of course, for letting me check in with him. I'll drop Dave's social media handles in the show notes if you want to follow him, as well as a link to purchase Silver Linings if you are a England football nerd. Remember, if you like what you've heard, I'll sign us off by saying give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. If you're feeling generous, give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us financially, you can do that by going to www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or if you want to do a one-off donation, you can go to our GoFundMe. That link is in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>